Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. An unlikely friendship begins in the Paramount Plus original movie, Little Wing, starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Reeling from her parents' divorce, Caitlin steals a valuable bird to save her home, but instead forms a bond with the owner, leading to a new outlook on life. Little Wing. Now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus. Head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Rated PG 13. Johnny, get your gun, get your gun, get your gun. Take it on the run, on the run, on the run. Hear them calling you and. World War I is history's first global war. Millions of soldiers from over a hundred nations fought and died, and billions were affected. It shattered the old world order and created a new one, and its outcome was decided by its battles, which were the largest that had ever been seen, and introduced terrifying new weapons. Welcome to the Key Battles of World War I podcast, where we dive deep into the battles that decided the fate of humanity. Hey everyone, welcome back to our Key Battles of World War One series. We're on Key Battle number 10, the 1918 German Spring Offenses. And to start off the series, something I'd like to do to discuss this is um, get ourselves in the place of people in World War One. It's early 1918. And think about what people were imagining how the war would turn out. So do you think for people there, it's January 1918, let us say, and was it just a foregone conclusion with everyone except for a fanatical diehard that, oh yeah, the Allies are definitely going to win. We have this in the bag. We just need to mop up. Do you think that's what people were thinking, James? Absolutely not. <laughs> no, yeah. This is not World War II. Uh, in World War II, historians have different ideas about when it became sort of certain or conventional wisdom that the Allies were going to win. Some people will say 1943. That's at least what the leaders of the Allied coalition believed when Stalin, Churchill, and FDR meet in Iran in 1943. They sense that it's going to win. They just have to hammer out some broad agreements, and uh, Churchill and FDR need to assure Stalin that, yes, we are going to land in the West and free up the pressure for you in the East. But many people believe it's going to happen. Some historians argue that um, as soon as America enters the war in 1941, then it's over. Germany simply cannot fight on so many fronts. Uh, The war is unwinnable. Some will point to German generals who are telling Hitler that launching a war based on your plans is unwinnable and they're dismissed. So people put it at different signs. But if you're looking at the last year of the war in 1945, Nobody thinks Germany has a chance at all. It is donezo. Um, After the Battle of the Bulge, what else can they do except try to negotiate the best possible peace? But in 19... To have uh, the Allies in World War I talk about winning the war two years before it's over in 1916 and 1917, let me tell you, listeners, 
France and Britain were not having meetings talking about the post-World War I order. That did not happen. Uh, at the beginning of this war, it seems like it could go either way. We constantly see battles happen where somebody breaks through, such as the British in Cambrai. They go a few miles, they celebrate, and then they're immediately pushed back. Um, it's easy to assume that German defeat was inevitable at the hands of the Allied coalition. With America entering the war, they have a surge in money, manpower, weapons. But Germany nearly captured Paris many times. In 1914, they crushed Serbia and Romania. They bleed the French army dry until it's mutinying. Russia is now out of the war like we saw. They come very close to victory on the Western Front in 1918. Uh, really, I think until the armistice is signed, nobody knew how this war was going to turn out. People were on edge and they were frazzled. And it's not the triumphant march through the West like America and allies have in 1944 and 1945. Uh, it's a very different situation. So that's a background I want to give um, just so we realize that the spring offenses that Germany does, this isn't a Hail Mary pass. This isn't a ridiculous, you know, final charge where they're going to be mowed down like, I don't know, the, the last samurai where medieval warriors are running right into machine gun fire. Very different situation. So what's going on, James? What's the background to the spring offensives? Well, we saw in our last several episodes that the German high command and the German army was basically on the defensive in 1917. The British and the French had launched several offensives, resulting in several battles, none of which really did a whole lot. But Germany had not launched a major attack really since Verdun. So they decided, let's try one more time. Let's Maybe this time they'll break. The German army was very much bled. Now I don't want to say bled dry. That They still had a lot of fighting power. But they had also been reinforced by, as we saw earlier, several hundred thousand troops from the Eastern Front who now no longer had to fight Russia. On January 17th of 1918, German Chief of Staff Ludendorff wrote to his boss, at least technically his boss, Hindenburg, he said, he said this, the proposed new offensive should lead to the decisive success for which we hope. We shall then be in a position to lay down such conditions for peace with the Western powers as are required by the security of our frontiers, our economic interests, and our international position after the war. That's from John Keegan's First World War. So Ludendorff had a lot of uh, hope that Maybe if we just hit them one more time, hit really hard, the British and or French will crack. We, and they wanted to do it before the Americans were coming. They knew the Americans were on their way. They had about six months to use these soldiers that had come from the Eastern Front to hit the Allies before the AEF arrived in force. Germany would have numerical superiority on the Western Front for the first time since 1914. And three German armies are going to participate. Meanwhile, the British took over some more of the Allied lines south of the Somme. They had to repair the heavily damaged French trenches, and now half of German vision, half of German divisions were facing British divisions. On January 21st, Ludendorff decided that the German offensive would start with Operation Michael, which they, that was going to be the first phase of this major assault near San Quentin toward the Somme. The attack would begin in late March. Right, and they're planning things out with intense German efficiency. Just to give you an idea, 
They bring in their best soldiers from the Eastern Front. They select elite stormtroopers. They train them in winter and new tactics. They use stopwatch timing. And the plan is, I mean, down to seconds, that like all World War I battles, there'll be an artillery barrage. And the German artillery would lay down a sudden barrage ahead of its advancing army. But they time things out much more thoroughly. Right after the barrage ends, they would fire light machine guns and small units. Then stormtroopers would quickly bypass enemy strong points and then head for critical bridges, command posts, supply dumps, and artillery batteries. So the idea is to quickly move, cut enemy communications to paralyze their response. And all this would happen in the first half hour. Then they would uh, break the enemy's firepower after silencing their artillery. They're preparing for this. They're running tests. They're running their stopwatches and everything. And after this, then they'd send in two more waves of uh, infantry to mop up the strong points that had been bypassed. The idea is to frighten and disorient the first line of defenders, allied defenders, and they'd flee in panic. So that's the plan, at least. It's very rigidly planned and tested and everything. So how does it go? What's the next step that Germany has? Well, prior to the actual official launch of the assault, both sides conducted bombing raids on positions behind enemy lines. This was mainly in January. In February, Ludendorff said, we must not believe that this offensive will be like those in Galicia, which is in the east, or Italy. It will be an immense struggle that will begin at one point, continue at another, and take a long time. So they're going all in on this one. It's, as Scott said, it's the most thoroughly and intensely planned operation, perhaps of the entire war. They're going all in. This is going to be it. It's like almost a final roll of the dice. On February 26th, during a French raid on German positions, this is just kind of an interesting story prior to the actual battle. There was an American colonel who got involved and helped take German prisoners. This colonel was the kind of guy who wasn't content to stand in the back and give orders. This colonel would grab a gun himself and march out there and and, and be right in the thick of everything, like it's the Civil War or something, right? Uh, this colonel received the Croix de Guerre, the first American to do so, and his name was Douglas MacArthur. <laughs> Sounds like it kind of went to his head. I wonder if that's going to affect his view of himself in the future. Uh, it just might, yeah. <laughs> M- MacArthur was like a madman in World War I. Uh, he was completely fearless, but more on him later. On March 9th, the Germans began a series of artillery barrages because that's what you do. You have to, you have to <laughs> soften, course. theoretically at least. It's in the rule the book. Side. It's the rules. Yeah, it's in the rule book, right? You have, it's kind of like a football game. You have to have a kickoff at the beginning. So you, you kick off, forgive the pun, you kick off a World War I battle with an artillery barrage. All right, so what was the Germans' objective? Their objective was to drive the British from the Somme and the Germans, I'm sorry, the French from the Ain, threatening Paris. This is the hope of every World War I battle, right, Scott, to break through. I mean, the, the plan is never, well, let's just dash forward and be cut to pieces and take one half of a mile and lose 500,000 guys. That, that's never the plan, right? Uh, that's often what happens. But again, the Germans really felt they could use this extra manpower they had to cause a breakthrough. They had 90 divisions. That's about 3 million men with more on the way. And they fooled the British into thinking the attack was coming in Flanders. Remember, Flanders is near the coast. It's on the north part of the Western Front battle line. The British First Army on the left or the north defended Arras. Julian Bing and the Third Army were just south of them. Further south of them, Hugh Gao or Go. Uh, 
G-O-U-G-H, or maybe it's Goff. I don't know. English is such a weird language. (laughs) Anyway, he led the 5th Army. They defended San Quentin. They were opposed by the German 17th Army under Otto von Bello, the 2nd Army under Georg von der Marwitz, and the 18th Army under Oskar von Hufter. Okay, none of these are really household names, but there they are. Finally, on the first actual day of the battle, D-Day, if you will, for this battle, on March 21st, the Germans fired an artillery barrage of 6,000 guns. They used lacrimatory mustard and phosgene gas. They fired 3.5 million shells in just five hours. And again, I don't think that breaks the record for total shells. I know we've seen 4 million. But in just five hours, that may be the most shells per time. Yeah, I think we have a record here. Yeah, I know. We just keep firing more and more and more shells. And they also had a lot of aircraft. There were about 360 German fighter planes attacking 260 British. 30 total planes were shot down on the first day. And by the way, I should mention that the overall name of this offensive, this entire, this campaign, if you will, in the spring of 1918 is the Schlacht, which means uh, the Kaiser's battle. I just like saying those German words. Schlacht, <laughs> yeah. I wish I had taken German in school, but I didn't. Anyway, so the first phase of the, or the first major campaign within the overall Kaiserschlacht offensive is Operation Michael. At seven o'clock on March 21st, 44 German stormtroop divisions went over the top and sprinted toward the British lines. Many of them didn't even use their rifles. Their goal was just get there as fast as you can and start raising cane. They smashed through the British lines. They advanced over four miles. They took 20,000 British prisoners and they inflicted 30,000 other casualties. Before long, more German divisions began to attack. And for the first time since 1914, Finally, the war was once again a war of motion. There's movement. There's a lot of ground being taken. But the breakthrough was mainly on the German left, which is the south. Even though the attack was a success, it was not what Ludendorff had planned. He had also wanted a breakthrough on the German right, the north. But that did not happen. Nevertheless, the Germans were advancing quickly. The Kaiser declared, the battle is won. The British are defeated. And in some places, the Germans advanced up to 35 miles. That, that's just like an eternity for World War I. That's, that's, that's like in World War II, going 500 miles or something. 35 miles is unheard of on the Western Front up to this point. The French General Philippe Pétain sent forces to help the 5th Army, but they too had to retreat. On the 25th, the Germans broke through between the French and British lines. They were threatening to completely cut in two the, the Allied Army, the Allied Line, the Allies finally decided to promote unity of command. They decided to finally appoint an overall commander, uh, and they choose Ferdinand Foch, a French general who had uh, had a lot of success up to this point. Foch takes command. He's commanding both British and French forces, and he decides to concentrate forces in front of the town of Amiens, which the Germans were really hoping to take. But, uh, as often happens, no matter how good your initial advance is, your initial attack, even if you break through, you always run into problems. You run into logistical problems. We've seen a lot in the past, Scott, how armies have run out of supplies as they get too far away from their, their base of operations. But here we see just the opposite. The Germans end up having too many supplies. <laughs> Imagine that. The listener may be saying, what are you talking about? 
what happened was as the Germans advanced and, and rapidly pushed back the British and French, they found all this stuff lying around. They looted the former Allied positions. The Allies had not had time to take their supplies with them. So these starving or nearly starving German soldiers find all this food. And so they start stuffing their faces and eating everything they possibly can. And even more importantly, they find alcohol. <laughs> Uh-oh, they crash through the beer hall. They're going to slow down a little bit, get a little tipsy. Yeah, exactly. Going. This is something we, we see in several Civil War battles, especially the Confederate <laughs> armies who were themselves on the brink of starvation or seemingly a lot of the time, certainly undernourished. They, they break into a Union camp and start looting. Well, here the, the Germans do the same thing. They... A lot of the German soldiers get drunk, and so they're just not able to do anything from that point on. So that's the end of the first advance. The German attacks resumed on the 30th, but they soon stalled. And they came within five miles of the key town of Amiens, but they just could not take it. They'd been slowed down by the obstacles of the old Somme battlefield. Uh, it's really slow going when there's a shell crater everywhere you look, you know, people are falling in these craters, having to go around them. It, it's really slow, slow movement. On March 30th, British and Canadian forces counterattacked and made gains. British and Canadian reinforcements began arriving. German forces attacked again on April 4th and 5th at the Somme, but these attacks failed. British General, uh, I'm going to say Goff, let's go with Goff. He wrote, the, the, Mike, the enemy resistance is beyond our powers. And the Germans, again, began to dig in. So to summarize what happened in Operation Michael, the first phase of the Kaiserschlacht or the spring offensive, Germany gained 20 miles on a front of 50 miles. They took 1,200 square miles of territory, 90,000 prisoners and tons of supplies. They inflicted 160,000 British and 70,000 French casualties, but... They themselves lost 160,000 casualties. They took no strategic locations, and they had to build new defensive lines. And now they had a salient, which was an awkward position. Again, a salient is kind of a bulge into the line, uh, and because it, it can be attacked on three sides. John Keegan writes, the BEF, that is the British Expeditionary Force, had suffered its first true defeat since trench warfare had begun three and a half years earlier. Hey everyone, Scott here. We're going to take a very short break for a word from our sponsors. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, 
according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This is something else, a, a theme that we come to over and over again, where there's an innovation in World War One, but it's a little bit ahead of its time. And this tactic that Germany uses, where it's like a giant wave coming and crashes on the shore, but then it almost immediately pulls back. This stormtrooper tactic, there's mobility, but there's not really enough firepower to support it. And that's part of why it washes away. This does work in World War II in 1939 and 1940 with Blitzkrieg. The reason this formula is perfected is because the stormtrooper wave and also tanks is aided by dive bombers and tanks. The infantry is covered. But in 1918, the Germans lack both. So World War I, this just came to my mind. It's like an experimental prototype of new technology that's eventually perfected in World War II. Now you have operational tanks that don't have the weak points like they do in World War I. Now you have fighter aircraft that aren't so rickety. They don't crash half the time as much as they're shot down by enemy aircraft. Now you have combined arm tactics where you have paratroopers, you have airplanes that work well, you have bombers, you have tanks, and you have everything else that can come into symphony of combined arms assault. But it just isn't all working together in World War I the same way. So great idea on Germany's end, but there's not the support that makes the uh, stormtrooper wave successful. So uh, I think you had a movie to tie into this, James, to add to our list. Yeah, there is another movie. Take a drink, people. <laughs> uh, I'll, I think that hasn't been an official drinking point for our World War One series. But anyway, any excuse yeah. is fine. <laughs> an excellent movie called Journey's End. I believe it's a British film. And it talks about this this assault, this German massive assault by these stormtroopers against the British lines. It has Paul Bettany, who's been in several things. He was in the uh, A Beautiful Mind, which was an excellent movie. He was in Master and Commander and several other things. I think he was in, uh, gosh, I'm what's the Dan Brown? Oh, <laughs> he's the albino monk that horrible. in uh, Da Vinci Code. Yeah, the Da Vinci Code, right. Younger listeners, he's in the Marvel movies. Uh, he is Vision well, yeah. and the voice of Jarvis. Right. Yeah. So he's, he's been around and he plays a a British officer in that it's a good show. And again, we'll put it in our list of recommended movies. All right. So the Germans, they are initial assault gains quite a bit of ground, but is finally checked by the British, but they're not done. Not even close. They're going to about to launch the second phase of the Kaiser Schlacht. I got to keep (laughs) saying that too. Every time I say a German word, (laughs) that'd be another, another excuse for our listeners. Drink a Hefeweizen listeners. Or a Pilsner. Oh, that Pilsner's check. Sorry, everyone. Heineken, perhaps. Okay. Or uh, Anyway, <laughs> this is going to be called Operation Georgette. And originally it was George. They're, they're naming these after famous saints. Uh, St. Michael, the Archangel. St. George was the patron saint of 
the country of Georgia, as well as England, and, and a lot of Christians are big fans of St. George. In fact, the, the parish I attend is called St. George. If you need but, to kill a dragon, they, call in George. Yeah, that's right. They're hoping to kill a dragon, but it kind of gets scaled down, and so they changed it to Georgette. You know, it's like George Light, right? It's also called the Battle of the Lease, which is a river in Flanders, and that's exactly what the Germans wanted to do. They wanted to cross the Lease River in Flanders, overrun the southern Ypres salient, and to drive to the coast between Calais and Dunkirk. There's two um, places that have a lot of significance in other wars. Uh, sometimes this is called the Battle of La Lise as well. So they're trying to uh, make it to the coast, cut off part of the German, uh, the, the British army, I'm sorry, the British. Now, the British thought the main thrust would be at Vimy Ridge. And the initial German attack, which was on April 9th, opened a four-mile gap in the British line. Not good, for the British at least. The Germans used 2,000 tons of mustard gas against the British. German forces continued to advance on April 10th and April 11th. And it was looking bad for Britain. It was looking like the British were going to be, uh, at least part of their forces were going to be cut off and surrounded. And Marshal Haig issued this following statement, which is a very famous uh, quote from him. He said, there is no course open to us but to fight it out. Every position must be held to the last man. There must be no retirement. With our backs to the wall and believing in the justice of our cause, each one of us must fight to the end. So basically, <laughs> no retreat, no surrender. On the 14th, uh, as we saw I touched on this earlier. Marshal Foch, uh, or Foch of the French army was given the title general in chief of the allied armies. So Patton and Haig and Pershing all have to report to him. The initial attack of the Germans ended on the 14th. Another attack on the 17th failed on the 24th. The Germans were advancing toward Amiens and on the way they took a town called Villers Bretonneau in a battle that featured the first ever tank on tank wow. battle. Thank you. They're, like you said, a prototype. We're, we're, we're just going to try new things. They keep trying new things, tank on tank, but the advance stalled. In the St. Mihail, uh, Mihail salient, sorry, my pronunciation is not good all of a sudden, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, the German forces drove back an American unit. So the Americans are starting to see the elephant a little bit here. Another German attack on the 29th failed, and that brought this phase of the operation to an end. Total casualties in Operation Michael and Georgette were 325,000 for the Germans, 260,000 for the British. So the Germans are starting to make progress, but they're losing a lot. It's a Pyrrhic victory. Historian Martin Gilbert says this, The Battle of La Lise was a turning point not only in German military fortunes, but in German battlefield morale. Many soldiers were depressed and exhausted, seeing no further prospect of breaching the Allied line. Right. And I think that if there is a mistake that Germany makes here is that they attack the British instead of the French. Ludendorff, he thinks that the British are too uninspired to respond quickly to their new tactics. But if they would have struck the French instead, uh, the French are on the point of complete mutiny. They're units that have mutinied or at least refused to fight or gone on strike, if that's an appropriate term in the military, as we described in earlier episodes. Mm -hmm. But they're exhausted. Uh, many of them have lost their elan, and they could have folded if the Germans had struck them. 
I mean, the German assaults on the British were ferocious, and there's reason to think that Britain would have folded. There's 63 divisions that attack in the fog at the Somme River, and the didn't matter because the Germans were so prepared. They memorized their maps and their orders and knew where to go. And the British lost 270,000, like we said, or 260,000. They fell back 40 miles, but they still held on. And they are adapting to the new German tactics. What they do is they fall back. They abandon the uh, trenches. They let the attackers overextend themselves, and then they counterattack. So both sides are adapting. Yeah, you're right. The French army was what they should have attacked. The British were getting more and more people all the time. Uh, fresh troops, well-fed, relatively well-rested, you know, compared to the French. And and the French were not like that. The French were, as you said, really kind of starting to get depressed and, and down in the morale. But uh, anyway, that's Ludendorff did what he did. Wow. So let's see what happens next. Just a couple of things before we get to the major operations. On, in April and May, the British launched, a, launched attacks on German-held ports in Belgium, including Ostend. Their purpose was to trap German submarines in the ports. But, of course, as we've often seen, it failed. On May 18th and 19th, German and British bombers conducted bombing raids. The Germans bombed London and the British bombed Cologne. So we're starting to see more longer-range bombing missions, which, again, are going to be kind of a – harbinger or a foreshadowing of the massive bombing raids and very long range that are going to happen later in World War II. All right, so now let's move on to the next phase. The Germans are still not going to give up. They're still going to keep hitting and hitting hard. We're going to look at the Third Battle of the Ein and Operations Blucher, Gers, and York. The preparations for these attacks were very well concealed. The Allies had no idea where the attack would occur. And on May 27th, the Germans launched an artillery barrage, surprise, surprise, but this time using pre-calibrated cannons. They fired 3 million shells, with 50% of them being gas shells. Whoa. Yeah, that's... uh, They're playing dirty now. They weren't before. They really are. Yeah, the gloves are off, for sure. By 9 a.m., advanced troops had reached the Ein and had captured 650 big guns, by 11 a.m., the Germans had crossed the Ein, and by midnight, they had crossed the Vesle River at Corlandon. Uh, in just the first day of the attack, the German infantry had advanced nearly 14 miles. That was the biggest single-day advance of any army in the entire war. So 14 miles in one day. Wow, that's, <laughs> from a World War I standpoint, that's hard it's to like believe. It's like dog years uh, compared to World War II, so that would be... Um... 1427, uh, almost 100 miles. Incredible. Right. All right. By the end of the second day, the Germans had advanced 40 miles, but they were not successful everywhere. In their first real offensive, now the Americans are getting into the battle here. The AEF took the village of Contigny, and they held it for three days in the face of fierce German counterattacks. The lack of cavalry and armored cars and tanks slowed the Germans down. By the 30th, the Germans had taken Soissons and reached the Marne. Remember the Marne, Scott? <laughs> it's been a long was, time uh, since we talked about the what, Marne. the very beginning of the war? It's, uh, I have yeah, amnesia. August, huh. uh, sep- yeah, September 1914. Uh, so 
yeah, it, it, it has been a long time, both from our discussion as well as for the Germans. It had been four years since there had been any fighting around the Marne. Nearly Remember the Schlieffen plan? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> didn't really, didn't really yeah. work out that way, did it? No, but here we're doing like Schlieffen 2 almost, 2.0, the upgraded version. Uh, the Germans are getting close. They're 50 miles from Paris. That's it, 50 miles. And they were so close that the big guns were firing shells into the city. And once again, as had happened in 1914, the French government made plans to evacuate. So things are looking really bad. It's not looking good for France. On June 3rd, the Germans crossed the Marne using giant ladders wide enough for two men to cross side by side. I don't know about you, Scott, but I would not want to cross a river on a <laughs> ladder with all you know machine guns and artillery oh, shells 60, flying 70 all over pounds the place. of gear on you and um, half starved. Yeah. I don't, I don't know right. if I, I'd probably fall in, I'm guessing. Yeah, it would, yeah, it would not be fun. And the Germans did actually establish a bridgehead on the far side of the Marne, you know, on the allied side of the Marne, but the Americans drove them back. Yay, America. <laughs> the battle ended on June 6th and both sides had lost about 130,000 casualties. So again, we're seeing German progress, but at very, very high cost. You know, we talked about all these hundreds of thousands of guys, you know, half a million guys coming over from the east, but they're getting killed. <laughs> they're coming over from the east and they're immediately dying. So uh, I don't know. It's, it's again, the, the phrase Pyrrhic victory comes to mind, mm -hmm. Scott. Uh, for those, I think all our listeners know what a Pyrrhic victory is, but just in case anybody doesn't know, it's just a victory gained at great cost. Like you technically you win, but you lost so much that you almost wish you hadn't attacked in the first place. Yeah. Right? It's, uh, <laughs> I mean, it's ruinous for their numbers and um, it just keeps going back and forth like this. All right. So again, the Germans are not about to quit. They're going to keep plugging, keep plugging. Maybe, maybe just maybe they can get into Paris and that'll be the end. Let's see how that works out. So we're getting now to another operation, operation, uh, or the battle of, that's a little easier to say. <laughs> so after the third Ein, Ludendorff began planning yet another new offensive. He liked to plan new offensives, didn't he? That was, that was Ludendorff's favorite activity. Let, let's, let's pull it again. I, want, I wonder, I wonder how you'll start the battle. You know, it's, I know it's late in the series and maybe I'll go back and insert something at the very beginning, but maybe for the drinking game, um, when a battle starts with an artillery barrage, <laughs> oh, man. Is there that makes me wonder? Is there an entire episode in the series that doesn't have that? I don't recall one. I think our listeners will end up being under the <laughs> table pretty quickly. But <laughs> wow, um, the French, by the way, had cracked the German code, and so they this time they knew the attack was coming. No more surprises. Uh, June, let's see. So June 9th, actually, it's not the Germans; it's the French. The French. Since they knew what was coming, they went ahead and went on the offensive themselves. They launched an artillery barrage, but the Germans launched a <laughs> counter barrage, and it was even more effective. My barrage <laughs> is better than your barrage. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Is, is that all you can bring? Well, watch this. Boom. Um, and the German, of course, the Germans next sent the infantry across. The infantry attack enjoyed initial success. I'll, I'll, when don't they, right? Initial success is almost always the rule. Um, but this time on the 11th, the French counterattack at Soissons, they caught the Germans on open ground, which is not where you want to be 
especially in World War I. The machine guns and tanks forced the Germans back. Ludendorff called off the offensive after only four days. That's very un-Ludendorffish, isn't it? <laughs> Is that a word? I like that. I'm sure in German you could create it. The condition. Oh, yeah, I know. It'd be a word with like, you know, 20 letters. Ludendorffgeistaufverstein. <laughs> the characteristic <laughs> of being un-Ludendorffish. Yes. Right, right. So, uh, yeah, Ludendorff doesn't normally give up that easily, but this time even he realizes that this is not going to work. The operation resulted in no gains this time for the Germans. Plus, the Germans now had a salient with a 60-mile perimeter that's very hard to defend. Hey, everyone. Scott here. One more brief word from our sponsors. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Now, enter the Americans. The Americans fought the Germans in the Battle of Bellow Wood from June 1st to June 26th. So a long battle, bloody, tough struggle. And in this battle, U.S. Marines played a key role. Dun, 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 dun. Yay, Marines. Uh, and the Marines fought very well, and they won. It was an Allied victory. It was the first battle to see heavy American casualties, among which there were 5,000 just among the Marines alone. And at the start of the battle, this is a fun story, one captain was ordered to retreat his company. And he replied, retreat? Hell, we just got here. So it's a classic, you know, American, we don't give up kind of quote, especially for the Marines. My dad was a Marine, so I have immense respect for the Marines. I almost signed up myself a couple of times, but I'm just not tough enough to be a Marine. (laughs) Never was. I prefer to study the Marines. They are fun to study, no doubt. Yeah, they are fun to study. They're very, very uh, great, especially in World War II. But anyway, in this Battle of Bellow Wood, 
there was a famous charge led by gunnery sergeant Dan Daly, and he shouted, come on, you sons of bitches. You want to live forever? So the Marines, were they were ready to fight. Uh, they yeah. were not going to think Rambo here, okay? The Marines were going in uh, with both barrels. On July 4th, appropriately, uh, well, this is a British attack. On July 4th, the British attacked in the Battle of Hamel. The attack was planned and commanded by Lieutenant General John Monash, who was commander of the Australian Corps and the Australian Imperial Force. We, we must never forget the great contributions made by Australians and Canadians and New Zealanders, as well as other Dominion forces like Indians, for example, and, and even some from Africa. This was a real team effort, Scott. And it wasn't just a bunch of limeys <laughs> from, <laughs> from England or Scotland or Wales. There were Irish, uh, as well as these others that I mentioned. It was a real team effort. And now Americans are joining in, too. The attack at Hamel employed the use of combined air power tanks, infantry, and machine guns for the first time in the war. All right. Combined arms assaults. Yes. Here we go. Scott, you've touched on this a little before, and, and here it is finally actual really being done efficiently. Everybody's working together. It's it's integrated. It's not piecemeal stuff. It's not, uh, okay, artillery barrage. Okay, wait until the ground settles and comes down. Okay, yeah. soldiers go. I mean, everyone knows the script of the other side, so we've got to mix it up. Right. And in this battle, all of the Allies' objectives were achieved within 93 minutes, just three minutes longer than Monash's calculated battle time. So so this is a massive Allied counterattack we've seen, and the Allies are really starting to get their stuff together, aren't they? They're really they're attacking efficiently as well as fiercely. And once again, I have to stress that there's movement. Uh, Pershing, I should say General Pershing, the commander of the American Expeditionary Force, Pershing was not interested in trench warfare at all. He, he said, we're not going to go over there and just sit in a bunch of trenches. We're going to fight. We're going to get out in the open. We're going to fight good old-fashioned warfare. And I don't know. He takes a lot of criticism for this because he he's criticized for not learning the lessons that the Europeans had learned and just going out there and fighting like it's 1914 all over again. And as a result, the Americans took really high casualties. But you could also say, you know, he was inspiring and he, he inspired Europeans to to not be so trench dependent. I don't know. There, there's two schools of thought on everything, isn't there, Scott? Yeah, I mean, easy for him to be gung-ho when he hasn't suffered through years and years of casualties. But, I mean, it does need a fresh perspective and... um making this a war of movement since uh, to the, the prudent defensive measure is of course trenches and you don't want to be mowed down by machines and machine guns, of course, but um, there is something to finally getting momentum and using new tactics that have evolved right. like combined arms. All right. We've got one more major German operation and that'll wrap up our, the Kaiser schlacht, the, the German spring offenses. And that is the second battle of the Marne. And again, remember how close the Marne is to Paris. Keep that in mind. The Germans plan to attack with 49 divisions to open a second railway line to the Marne. But the allies knew, remember they cracked the code of the Germans. They knew when the attack was set to begin. And so as we saw earlier with the French, they launch a, anticipatory, if you will, artillery barrage 30 minutes before the German one began. Then the Germans launched a barrage of confetti. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) Surprise. What do you think of that? Yeah. Uh, Just kidding. I was trying to see if anybody was listening. 
It was. Over- it, it's when you hear barrages. I mean, you have to mix it up, otherwise people tune out. So we've we got to like, keep you guessing, listeners. Yeah, let me guess. An artillery barrage, right? Yeah. Yes. Um, the German barrage delivered seventeen thousand five hundred rounds of gas. So gas is really, really prevalent on the battlefields of nineteen eighteen, and this is nastier you know, more harmful, more damaging gas than we had seen earlier in the war. On July 15th, the Germans went over the top east of uh, Rheem. They found nearly empty trenches and they overran them, but then they met stiff resistance. On the 16th, the Germans bombarded Champagne. The infantry attack met stiff resistance and French bombers also hurt the, hurt the German attack. Near Chateau Thierry, the Americans blew up all the German pontoon bridges in front of them. Pontoon bridges are bridges that are set up. They're temporary bridges that usually go across boats. Uh, one American general wrote this. There were no Germans in the foreground of the 3rd Division except the dead. So the Germans are dying in massive numbers. The French launched a, ta- a counterattack with 500 tanks. The Americans also attacked, and the Germans were pushed back about four miles and lost many prisoners. This is also called the Battle of Soissons. I've lost track of which one. <laughs> There's so many, <laughs> uh, you know, first, second, third, fourth battle of, of all these different places. British forces also made advances. Also, about 250,000 American soldiers were arriving each month. So, time is definitely on the Allies' side. Uh, the British are getting thousands hundreds of thousands of reinforcements as are the americans and the germans once they got that initial shot in the arm from the east of five hundred thousand troops they don't get any more on the 25th the germans tried but failed to take reem later that week they finally withdrew they pulled back uh to the deepest parts of the hindenburg line and that was it they had spent it they came very very close to taking paris but they failed just as they had in 1914. Ludendorff called off the attack, and this officially, if you will, ends the German spring offensive. Offensives, the Kaiserschlacht. Both sides had suffered one million casualties. Yeah, I mean, this is, if not already, a war of attrition for all sides. Uh, France had been feeling that for a while, but now everyone is. Uh, Germany with its uh, stormtrooper tactics and all of its training, they used up their best soldiers. They still didn't conquer much territory after everything was said and done. Uh, the British had still huge reserves from the British Empire, but they were out of fresh manpower. Uh, the French were nearly exhausted. Berlin thought it would take months for the Americans to send all their men and supplies, but the U.S. troops had arrived much sooner and already affecting the war. Uh, they left their supplies behind and relied on British and French artillery and tanks and trucks and equipment. And Berlin assumed that the Americans were undisciplined and unaccustomed to hardships and they would buckle under artillery barrages and the horrors of war. But that wasn't the case. Um, The Germans reported that the qualities of the Americans individually may be described as remarkable. They're physically well set up. Their attitude is good. They lack at present only training and experience to make formidable adversaries. The men are in fine spirits and filled with naive assurance, but still making it much harder. Uh, So the Central Powers are exhausted at this point. Uh, The American forces are pouring into France. Uh, James mentioned the 250,000 a month, a little bit less than 10,000 a day. 
the British Empire has mobilized its entire empire, um, peaking at 4.5 million men. They have 4,000 tanks on the Western Front. So that's where things are here. And um, we're going to take a pause on this of the Western Front. And in the next episode, we're going to tie things up in the Eastern Front and what happens there in 1918 and our key battle number 11, Megiddo. Uh, anything else to, before we close this off, James? No, that's it. Well, let's okay. see what happens out in the Middle East. All right. So we're going to take a break from all of our barrages and see what happens there. See you then. And we won't come back till it's over, over there, over there. Thanks for listening to the Key Battles of World War I podcast. To get detailed notes of each battle, along with maps and other resources, go to Key Battles of WW1. That's one, the numeral, dot com. Until next time, remember to keep your O3 Springfield clean, avoid trench foot, and show the Hun that you're a son of a gun. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. This episode is brought to you by Calitrin. Text the word UNPLUG to 30605 and I'll send you a link to a wonderful product that can help you finally succeed in shedding that extra weight. I took Calitrin for several weeks last year and I felt great in several ways. I felt stronger. My workouts felt easier. I slept better. I was noticeably trimmer. There was no downside. Text the word UNPLUG to 30605 right now to see this week's special offer on Calitrin. Calitrin contains collagen, the most abundant protein naturally occurring in the human body, which decreases as we age. Taking Calitrin promotes better sleep, more energy, less joint pain, and best of all, weight loss. Calitrin has an 86% success rate with their 90-day supply, and this week, take advantage of my special offer. Buy the 90-day supply and get an extra month free plus free shipping. Ordering is easy. Just text the word UNPLUGGED to 30605 and I'll send you a link to the special offer. Again, text UNPLUGGED to 30605.